I am going to tell you a secret this morning about the Christian life. Yes, a secret. So you are, you are intrigued because everyone loves to, to hear a secret. When we were on our way back from, uh, from Florida, we stopped in Tennessee where Hope's mom lives, and we were there. It happened to be over her, Hope's birthday. And so Hope and I, uh, we kind of went out for a little while, and while we were away, they were making a birthday cake for Hope. And when I got back, my son Luke, who's nine, told me about this cake. And he had, he had, we hadn't eaten it yet, but he had some of the crumbs. And he said, Dad, this cake is amazing. This is the most amazing cake I've ever had. This is, oh, this cake is wonderful. I said to Grandma, you have to tell me the secret ingredient. And he's nine. He wants to know the secret ingredient. So, and, he, and then he goes on and he's, I'm like, oh, yeah, the secret ingredient? He said, yeah, I asked Grandma what the secret ingredient was and she told me. I'm like, oh, well, what was it? And he says, it was bedrigger? I'm like, what? Okay, yeah, the secret ingredient, it was, it was bedrigger? I, what, what are you saying? I couldn't think of anything like that. And I look over to, uh, to Grandma. She's hearing this conversation, and she, she mouths, Betty Crocker. <laughs> oh, oh, I've given away the secret ingredient now to the whole church. Everyone knows. Uh, but you know, there's, there's, some, there's some secrets that really aren't secrets. They're, uh, they're out there in the open for everyone. And you, beware if someone tells you they have a real secret from the Bible nobody's ever discovered before, because uh, there's probably reason no one's discovered this. But sometimes it's a matter of just seeing what is right there, and seeing it, and, and taking it, and using it, and applying it. And as we look at this passage, and, and this whole chapter, this is what we need to be doing. There's no big hidden secrets here. These are things that uh, have been on full display for Christians and for us. But we need to focus on it. We need to use this. We need to apply what it says and respond as if God himself is telling us this because he is. Because that's what happens when we read his word. So, we are going to be looking at Romans 12. We're starting this new series on Romans 12. We'll be in this for, uh, for a few months. And we're going to be especially looking in Romans 12 at the theme of living the Christian life together. Because there's so much in Romans 12 that there's excellent material and it's about living the Christian life. But it's not about just living the Christian life solo, just you and Jesus on your own. But it shows us how much living the Christian life is about living the Christian life in connection with each other. As part of the body of Christ, connected uh, with those that are around us and what God wants us to do. And we're going to be seeing uh, so much of that. So because this is the first week, even though today we're just focusing on the first verse, let's take the time to read through the whole thing, to give us the overview. It doesn't actually take that long to do this, and the more that we do this, the more we see the big picture. So Romans 12, starting with verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the need of, needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, I hope you see there's so much in there that this is, this is going to be worthy material to spend weeks talking through this. You know, if, if God willing, he allows me to be at this church long enough, eventually I, I would love to do a long series preaching through all of Romans. Uh, so, but it, when we do that, it will probably take years before we actually get to uh, Romans 12. So when that time comes and we repeat Romans 12 one day, uh, it will be due for that. But it's good that we can be looking at this now. And I love that we're going to have this special emphasis on living the Christian life together. Today we're just looking at verse 1, focusing on that. And the big idea for today is that because of Jesus' sacrifice to save us, we should live sacrificed lives unto him. So as we look at this and dig into this, the first point we'll say is that God's great salvation must motivate our response. And if uh, someone could turn on the back projector, that would be helpful too. It, it has switched off. God's great salvation must motivate our response. So back in, in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We'll look at that section first. And you know, we said we're going to talk about living the Christian life together. We say, well, this first verse, this is about, it's kind of us uh, giving our lives over to God and being living sacrifices. What does this have to do so far with living the Christian life together? <laughs> this is foundational for everything. This is, needs to be the, the start of, of what, we're, what we're doing. If we're going to live the Christian life together, if, if we're not willing to lay our lives on as sacrifices unto God and for his glory and for his good, we're not going to be living in harmony with each other. We're not going to be doing all these other things. 
But if we're willing to, to give ourselves up to God and say that because of what he has done for us, uh, it, is, it is worthy for us to, to give our lives as a sacrifice um, in response to him, that changes everything. That changes our relationship with each other as well. So looking at this first part, I appeal to you, I think especially there's a uh, key word here, therefore. It's in there, maybe your translation even starts with the word therefore. And sometimes we might just skim over that. Sometimes translations just take that out, but it's important that it's there. And I, I'm, if you've been around long enough at different churches, you've heard somebody say, when you see the word therefore, you have to look what it's there for. Okay, which that's, it reminds you that therefore is important. It's, it's an old saying. It doesn't really help us to understand just in that saying, well, what is therefore doing? But think of the way that we use therefore the word, therefore, when we talk with other people. What it means, it, you would never just start a sentence, you know, come up to someone and say, therefore. You know, there has to be something before that. And when you say, therefore, it's saying, okay, what I've said before, because of this truth, if this is true, there needs to be this other implication. It needs to have some ramifications. So, uh, for example, point out that it is, it is zero degrees outside, therefore, wear a jacket when you go outside. Okay, there's some kind of truth, and there's some kind of appropriate response, there's some kind of implication from that. And so that's what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans. This is a pivotal section where he's taking all these great truths uh, that he's talked about about salvation, and many of these in the past few weeks in uh, the Five Solas series, and, well, we talk about this a lot at this church, just how God saves us. And this is implications of this, how our response needs to be, what it needs to be. Therefore, and Paul says that he, uh, he's appealing to us. He's, he's saying, uh, he's pleading, this is what needs to be the case. Do not disregard this. Don't blow this off. This isn't just uh, some, oh, take it or leave it. He's saying, I appeal to you with this, that by the mercies of God to do this. So what is our motivation for living the Christian life? What is our motivation for, he's going to say, to present our our bodies as living sacrifices? It's not out of guilt. It's not primarily out of guilt or fear or, well, just selfishness so that we can get more of what we want. But what Paul is saying to focus on is, is the mercies of God. He, when he says, therefore, he's pointing back to everything else he's written in all these other chapters of Romans. And if you need that to be fresh to you, hey, that would be a great thing to, to be reading through in the next few weeks, to start at the beginning of Romans and, and read through this. Uh, if you're one of the men, we're going through it on Wednesday nights, and yes, you should be a part of that. We're working through the book of Rome, the whole thing of, of Romans. But let me take... Um, a little bit of time just to kind of summarize a little bit. And this is dangerous to, because this could end up going on for nine hours and so I'm not going to try and do too much here. But the book of Romans, the message up to this point, Paul is, is talking about the power of God for salvation. That uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for everyone that believes. Everyone that will, will turn to him to accept Jesus Christ, the, the Lord as their Savior. And that's the power to save even the, the the deepest sinner. And that's who we are. And Paul takes the first three chapters of this to 
tell us the bad news first is that no matter who you are, no matter your situation, that, yeah, you came into this world as a sinner, you are a sinner, and you are accountable to God, and you need, desperately need, a Savior from our sins. And he starts off at first in verse 1. He talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to explain that even if it's somebody that never heard about the Scriptures, that they're still accountable to God. And he says, because God has put enough knowledge of himself just in creation that he's made it plain, he has made it plain, that there is a God and that we ought to worship him. And, but what is our response? The response of human beings it, as sinners is to say, I don't want that God. I will suppress that God and I'll make my own God something else that I can worship instead. And people from back in pagan times were doing that. And there's people that do that today. They create their own God in their own image that they would rather worship instead. He goes on and he says, also, the morally good people, they're accountable to God because they may think that they're, they're very morally good, but the fact that they can look at other people and say, well, this is wrong and this is wrong, it condemns themselves because we do the same things. We're, it's very easy for us to point out the bitterness in other people and to point out their sin and their, that person's a hypocrite and this person is a liar. But when we do that, it shows that we know good and well that those things are sinful. And so when we do those same things, uh, we are a witness against ourselves that we knew full well these things are wrong and yet we did them. And Paul goes on to say also that the, the Jewish people, even they had the scriptures, they had all this, but they are also still under sin. And he comes to a point in Romans 3 where he says, um, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. It's having the law or even doing the law, it's not what saves. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since, the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, the law, is, it does, it's not meant to save us, but the first thing it does, it shows us that we are sinners, that we need a Savior. And he talks about what is God's solution to this. What In 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation. That's a, a sacrifice. A sacrifice to remove the wrath of God by his blood, to be received by faith. I have to resist the urge to keep going and preach through all of Romans. But he goes on then in chapter 4 to talk about how um, salvation, it, it, it is given by the grace of God. It's a free gift alone. It's received just by faith alone, by trusting in him. And this is amazing free gift. We're not to take advantage of it. We're supposed to live lives that... Um, are, are new unto him because of this great gift he's given us. And so there's so many th- great things in Romans. And then he gets to this in Romans 12.1 and says, Therefore, I appeal to you because of this. If all this is true, if you believe this, this is how you're saved, live this new life unto God, motivated by his mercy. 
So that first part, live, I appeal to you, therefore, incredibly important. Second point, we're to live to God as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that is alive to him. Because he goes on, and this is the part where he tells us what to do. He's appealing to us to do what? He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present it, to, to offer it up to God. To don't hold it back, to be willing to lay it, to lay it on the altar for him. To give it up for him. He says to present our, our bodies. Now when he says that, He's, this is not just a reference just to your physical. That's, I think, not the way that Paul is using this here. As if, okay, you have to give your physical body, but, you know, your inner self, you know, that's okay. You can keep your heart for yourself and your desires, but just give the physical. That's not what he's saying. I think it, what he's saying is this is a reference to your whole self, your, your whole person. He's saying it's not enough just to give your heart to Jesus. Give everything about you. You know, there would have been some people in, in that time, you know, influenced by Greek thought that said, well, the body doesn't really matter. You know, if you have your devotion on the inside, that's what matters to God. And, you know, what you do with your body, that's your own business. You, you control that. You do what you want. It's not really that important. There's some people that think that way today. But God is saying your whole self, everything about you, it belongs to God. It needs to be this part of this sacrifice. You're not giving him a partial sacrifice. You're, you're giving him your whole self. And then there's the key word here, living. This is a living sacrifice. And if you've heard this verse a lot, that maybe this has lost its impact, but what would have been odd about this, especially in the ancient world, is you would say, well, sacrifices really aren't living. They used to be living, but they're, they're then killed, and then they're presented as an offering. So you have, you have killed sacrifices. You don't have living sacrifices uh, when, the, when the people would give you know, the uh, lambs and the oxen in the Old Testament law code and the different sacrifices, these animals were slaughtered. I mean, they were, they were killed. They shed their blood. They were killed in this way. But Paul is saying uh, the appropriate response is to give ourselves as sacrifices, but the sacrifices that are actually alive and alive unto God. Now, it's unusual but I think you can actually find at least three examples of living sacrifices, at least, in Scripture. And I think one of them is with Isaac in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 22. If you remember that story, Abraham, who's the, the father of the Jewish people, and in another sense, the, the father of all of us that have faith, that he was called, well, he was promised that through his descendants, God would make a great nation. And he had one son. And God said, it's through this son that I'm, gonna, I'm, going, to, I'm going to do this. And then God tells him, I want you to take the son. I want you to take him up and I want you to, to give him as an offering. Not in some metaphorical sense, but it is an actual offering. And so Abraham obeys God. And he goes to do this. And you read this chapter in Genesis 22, it's a heavy chapter that he's, he's willing to do this. Isaac is going with him. But there's this pivotal moment. They, they go up 
preparing the altar. Abraham is uh, getting ready to, to offer. And then in verse 15 it says, And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Verse 9, actually. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. And it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I hope you can read that whole account. Abraham. Ham took Isaac, his, his, only, his only son, and was willing to, to offer him. And to many, this seems like a, that aren't familiar with it, a bizarre, brutal story. But to really make sense of this, we have to look ahead to what this was a picture of, what God was, was doing with this. And yes, God didn't have him go through with this. He stopped him and provided this ram that was sacrificed then in, in Isaac's place. So in one sense, you could say Isaac was a sacrifice that, that lived. And Isaac was a sacrifice that lived because another took his place. Another was sacrificed in his place so that he could go on living. So that could be one example of a living sacrifice. But another example, I think it's the one that this, that whole story ultimately points to. That another one and only son of a, a father, the ultimate father, that this time, the father gives his son and does not spare him. This time, the son, the son of God, is, is given. And instead of a, a ram being given as a substitute for this son, this son is given as a substitute for us all. For anyone that will trust in him and believe in him and come to him. And Jesus Christ, he is, he is the, the ultimate sacrifice. But he really did die, but he didn't stay dead because he rose again. On the third day, he came back. So is Jesus a living sacrifice? Well, yes, he is. He was sacrificed and he became alive and he is alive today. He is the lamb that has been slain, who, who is alive, who we worship, a risen and living God who died for us and rose again for us. And I think the third type of living sacrifice then is those who died and rose along with Jesus. Those who at the same time that Jesus died, died along with him. And those who at the same time that Jesus rose from the dead, rose along with him. And if you're wondering, well, well who is that? I don't remember, what does it say? Who else died you know, with him at that time? No, there's, that refers to many people in this room. If you're a believer, this refers to you. Back in the book of Romans, if you're still open to that, flip back to Romans 6. 
same book, just a few chapters before. And I think this gives us some insight as far as what does Paul mean when he talks about this living sacrifice concept. And he says, what then shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's a free gift, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our our water baptism pictures this. That at the moment of salvation, that in God's eyes, God who is above time, that at the moment that you trusted Christ as Savior, or the moment that you do trust Christ as Savior, and I hope it's today if you haven't, that at that moment, in God's eyes, who is, is beyond time, you died with Christ. And that just like we, we go down into the water and come back up, that you were bound to him, that you died with him, and you're also raised to newness of life with him. And that's why you and I are a living sacrifice. It goes on, verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, this is key. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He's talking about bodies here. To make yourselves obey their passions, do not present your your members, the parts of your your body, the parts of yourself, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So here's the secret. I told you there's going to be a big secret to the Christian life. Okay, a secret that's actually right there on, on the pages out in the open. Here's the secret. Live like you've died. Live like you have died and come back. Imagine what that would be like. What if, what if you died? You faced the end, you went back, you left it all behind, you realized everything that you were collecting, everything that you needed, you're hoarding and all this, uh, you can't take it with you, you're gone. And you go and you get to experience the Hopefully the joy of heaven, you get to see God, you give a glimpse of this. And let's say God, he, he sends you back. Would you just go on with life as if nothing ever happened? If this is a real thing, not like one of those, you know, little books, you know, people write with fake stories that make a bunch of money. But, um, you know, if this really happened, you would have a completely different perspective, wouldn't you? If you came back and you're like, this is, my, my death is gone and I'm not going to die again, this is amazing. You realize that this, God is saying that this is what you need to live your life like. You need to consider yourself that you have died. Because God is saying that that's how he, he declares this to be true of you. And that's why in Romans 6.11, he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word for consider, it's the same word Paul kept using in Romans 4. When he talked about uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It was declared this way to be true. 
You need to declare it and believe it about yourself that, that okay, the old is, is dead. You have this risen new life to God and this is the life that you're going to live out of, not this old life of, of sin and corruption. God has made you into a new person. And whether that happened to you when you were 40 or when you were 4, that the moment that you trusted Christ, genuinely, that is what truly happened to you. Live your life like you've died and that you've been given new life. If you think about that, that changes your perspective. You've died to sin and you're alive to God. You know, we don't have an altar here up front. We have a communion table. But if this were an altar, think about presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. Imagine yourself presenting your whole self on, on the altar to God. Maybe you want to visually, you know, in, in your mind do this and say, I, I need to do this or I need to, I need to renew this because we have a way of sometimes crawling off the altar or, or sliding off the side. But present yourself to God saying, God, take me, use me. I belong to you. Use me for your glory, not for, for my selfish desires. Whatever I have, I offer it to you to be a living sacrifice to him. Because really, point three, this is the true worship. This is the true worship that makes sense. Romans 12, 1 concludes, this is the whole worship, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, some of you might be following along in different translations. And this is something that's interesting to note. The word here, uh, we're using the English Standard Version, uh, which, which is a good version. There's no perfect version. This was originally written in Greek when Paul wrote this. Uh, but some versions translate the word here spiritual, uh, the ESV, NASB, HCSB. And there, there's a good reason for this. First um, Peter 2, 2 uh, talks about pure spiritual milk, translates it this way, that way. But another way that it can be translated, because the Greek word is actually logikos. Logikos. Does it sound like the word logic? It is. It's where the word logic comes from. And so some translations, including the King James, New King James, translate it as, as reasonable. And I think there's something to be said for that way of thinking about this too. I think both of these could make sense in the flow of thought. They're each possibilities. Um, I, I think if I had to pick, I think the flow of thought for me, I think reasonable makes a lot of sense. That he's saying, if all of this that I wrote in, in Romans is true, this is therefore what you need to do. And this makes sense. This is reasonable. This is rational. This is, this is the logical thing to do. If God saved you by his grace, it's not logical for you to just live a selfish life to yourself, withholding yourself from God, or just giving a wee little part of yourself for, for his glory. No, what makes sense is that we willingly give all of ourselves to be used by him for however he wants to use us. And that's why the, I summarize this point. This is the true worship that, that makes sense. And I, I think that fits for whichever way ends up being that, that Paul actually meant for this to be translated. The sacrifice makes sense. It's, it's rational. It doesn't make sense to not do this. And this is the kind of sacrifice that, that God wants. It is offering our whole self. It is something that is, he wants our, our, our heart. He wants what is, is spiritual. This is the way also to spiritually and truly uh, to worship him. That we don't worship him just with outer things, going through some motions, 
what he really wants, the real worship he wants, he wants you. He wants your, your heart and your soul. This is the, the, the valuable thing that we can really give to him. I mean, he created you in his image, and because of that, and he has such value in it that you can give him what is so, uh, so valuable up for his, for his glory. This is what he wants. He doesn't want something that's superficial, just something on the surface. He's not, it doesn't make sense to just give him something partial, something dead. It doesn't make sense to give him something unholy or unacceptable. And Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, you've been made acceptable to be given as a sacrifice to him because of what Jesus did for you. At the moment that you were saved, God declared you to be righteous in his eyes. Even though you look back in your life and you realize that you have enough sins to fill volumes. Okay, and that's true of all of us. And yep, that's the case. And you might say, well, I am unworthy to be a, for me to be a sacrifice for God's glory. Well, guess what? God calls you worthy because of what Christ did in your place. He considers you to be worthy because Christ died for you and he took away your sins and he gives you his righteousness. And yeah, part of the Christian life then is we work at growing in actual personal holiness too. You know, we don't want our lives to be just uh, a dirty sacrifice for him. We want to be removing that dirt and scraping it off so that that the lives that we present to him, although they'll never be in and of ourselves perfect in this life, that we can give him a, a better and better sacrifice. That's part of the reason why we, we reject sin. We try to walk away from it. We fight against sin. We try to root out that sin that is in our heart because we know that it doesn't please God. And we want to give him a, a sacrifice for ourselves that, that pleases him more and more. But ultimately, it's what Jesus did for us. It's not how wonderful we are. It's what Jesus did for us. And that's why we can be these sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to him. What a joy it is to think that through Christ, God can find your sacrifice of ourselves as holy and acceptable in his eyes. He doesn't want something from you. He wants you. So then the question, are you, are you living the sacrificed life or are you living the unsacrificed life? Take time to think through all the examples of what would be the unsacrificed life and what would be the sacrificed life given to him. The unsacrificed life says, what's in it for me? As you go through life, as you come to church, as you look for something that God calls you to do, what's in it for me? Where the sacrificed life says, how can I be used by God in the lives of others? For their good and ultimately for God's glory. There's a difference just in mindset between the the sacrifice and the unsacrificed life that changes how we live. It changes our relationship with each other. I mean, you see now how all of this is foundational for living the Christian life together. If we have the unsacrificed life, we can talk about living in harmony and helping each other, but it's always going to be, well, still, what's in it for me? But if we laid our lives down and said, everything, my, my life, my time, my talent, my treasure, you know, my old dreams, whatever, I, I lay them on the altar for God. And it's whatever he wants I'm willing to do. I want to seek the good of others. People... I want to seek the glory of God. I want to seek the good of people that God loves as well. Our time, our talent, our treasures. Is it for me? The, old, the unsacrificed life says they're all for me. It's my time, my talents. I use it for me, my glory, my treasure. I use it for, for my good. The sacrifice life says, well, 
This is part of me. I'm going to use it for God's glory. It means that old agendas must die. Sometimes our dreams and ambitions. But you know, if God asks you to lay down a dream for him, he will replace it with a greater and better dream. A dream that will last. A dream that will come true. You see, in the end, this is not a sacrifice in which we lose. Where we give up something and it's, it's gone. This is, a, this is a sacrifice in which we gain something that is much better. We exchange something that is, is small and temporary for something that is greater. God asks us to lay down the small thing so he can give us the greater thing forever. And this applies to living the Christian life together. The unsacrifices, self-centered, prideful, easily offended, looking for its own. The self-sacrifice life reflects God's self-giving love. The love in Jesus Christ, the love that saved us. One place John Piper wrote, True Christians are a mercy-moved, mercy-carried, mercy-shaped people. And all of our our small groups, our our Christian interactions, should have this meaning. They're meetings of mercy-molded people. We live by mercy and we minister by mercy. All of us need mercy and when we get it, we share it. Because your life is is either going to be a sacrifice to God or it's going to be a sacrifice to something else. It really is. And every day, most people, they, they bleed and they die to some God, but it's not the true God that is worthy of them. People die and bleed for the false gods of, of pride, pleasure, the pocketbook. They withhold themselves from, from their maker, the one that made them and and offers them salvation and said they live for, for society and for, for Satan and for self. It's not a matter of if you sacrifice your life, it's a matter of who you will be sacrificing it to. Don't sacrifice your life to the wrong God. Don't withhold yourself either. Give it freely to the God who first gave himself for you. Would you die for Christ? Many people would say, yes, I, I wish I would. I, I'd be willing to die for Christ. I'd be willing to be a martyr. It'd be hard, but I'm willing to do it. The question is, are you willing to live for him as a living sacrifice? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the first thing you need to do. You can't be a living sacrifice if you're spiritually dead. Trust that Jesus Christ did everything required for your salvation. Come to him, accept that free gift. If you need to talk to someone afterwards, Talk to me, talk to to Pastor Nick or one of us. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you. But if you have been saved by his mercy, by his sacrifice, I appeal to you, live your life dead to sin and to selfishness, dead to the seductions of this world, and present your whole self and everything about you to another, to one to whom it makes sense for you to give all to. Live then unto the love and the glory of, of the one who made you, who loves you, and who sacrificed himself on the cross to save you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that, that you are the sacrifice that saves us. We thank you that our Father in heaven was willing to, to not withhold his one and only Son, but gave him up for us all. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And God, as we think about that sacrifice and the deep mercy that you have and the love that you have for us, 
Let that not bounce off our hearts, but let that sink in and motivate us. That we realize that the only response that makes sense is to give ourselves and our all to you. Help us to live as sacrifices unto you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.